From Twin Cities Business, this is By All Means, a show about innovation, drive, and purpose, and the leaders who make business work in Minnesota. I'm Allison Kaplan, your host and editor-in-chief of Twin Cities Business Magazine. We're coming to you from the studios of our presenting sponsor, the University of St. Thomas's Opus College of Business, serving more than 3,000 students enrolled in its undergraduate and graduate business programs. The college develops effective, principled business leaders who think globally and act ethically. And now, by all means. Nancy Lyons is co-founder and CEO of Clockwork, a Minneapolis-based experience design and technology agency that works with clients large and small from finance to government to consumer businesses. But that's just for starters. She's the co-author of a book called Interactive Project Management, Pixels, People, and Process, and has another book coming out soon. She serves as chair emeritus of the National Board of Directors of the Family Equality Council. She sits on the Minnesota Governor's Blue Ribbon Council on Information Technology. She's on the Open Twin Cities Advisory Board, as well as the Amplified Voices Board. She's a member of the advisory board for the innovative entrepreneurial conference Giant Steps. And she's a sought-after speaker and board member, really because of her candid ability to focus on the human side to leadership, entrepreneurialism, and technology. And she's willing to push a couple of boundaries. She's a leader with a personal mission statement. I love this. It's think strategically, act thoughtfully, be a good human. That's basically everything we like to talk about here on By All Means. So thank you for joining us, Nancy. Thanks for having me. When did you write your mission statement? I think everyone should have a personal mission statement. Yeah, and a personal set of values, too. Yeah. I feel strongly about that. Um, You know what? I've been working with that one for years. Ever since I started speaking in public, um, that just that sort of led me into all of the opportunities to speak just that so it's probably been 10 years yeah, yeah. you before you became a speaker and a celebrity uh, and a, yeah. yeah you were you were in technology i mean you built an agency yes how did that happen i mean did you grow up one did you like tech did you want to no. be an entrepreneur like what what came first what were the key things um i thought i was going to be a comedian so I was <laughs> that a theater makes so major. Much sense. Yeah, yeah. Okay. I was a theater major in college, and I thought I was going to be a comic, and I tried it for a while. I did a lot of dinner theater. When I first moved to the Twin Cities, I moved here to do theater, and I was doing dinner theater. I did Mystery Cafe. Have you ever heard of it? Maybe. It's Murder Mystery Dinner Theater. Oh mm-hmm. yes. For years and years, made some great friends there. Yeah. Um, but you know, somewhere in there, I decided I had to pay the bills, mm. um, and I started. Sh- Shifting my focus away, I'd finished my degree in um, media studies and I started to do like production work in traditional media and there were no women there. Um, No women bosses, for sure. There were no women directors. There were no women behind the camera. And I had a boss at the time who um, would ask me to do really exciting things like pick up his children from daycare or no. get his uh, dry cleaning. Um, Wait, and what was your job when he was asking? Were you an assistant? I was a, a, a line producer for that some was of the not time. Production in, assistant. Okay, yeah. that was not in the job description mm-hmm. to pick up his children. Mm-hmm. That was because you were a woman. Correct. And how did you feel about that? Well, um, at first I thought this is what I have to do, right? Like you you do what you're asked to do in order to sort of bubble up and create more opportunities for yourself. That's 
the story we were always told. Mm -hmm. And so I just thought if I toe the line and I keep showing up in the way that this person needs me to, I'll get additional opportunities. Um, But that wasn't happening. And, um, you know, I often tell people that in this era of Me Too, I'm bringing it down, Mm -hmm. Allie. I'm bringing it down. (laughs) We're going there. We talk about, um, we often talk about what happens when your boss is interested in you. Um, and wants to harass you because he may be attracted to you. We don't often talk about, in fact, we never hear about what happens when your boss is not interested in you, which is what I was experiencing. My boss hired a a very classically attractive woman to work next to me and gave her the opportunities first, um, and she was hired later, that I thought I was deserving of. So I watched him treat her differently because she was a classically attractive blonde woman And I watched him make me fetch his children, fill his car up with gas, and talk down to me on the regular. And I think, I always tell people that I learned what kind of a boss I wanted to be by working for this person. And um, I remember waking up one day and thinking, I can't take it. I can't let this person treat me this way anymore. So I just never went back to work. Really? Yeah. I I just woke up and thought, and I had no money. I was so poor, it wasn't even funny. Um... I just thought I'm done. I'm done. And I was in food I worked in food service. So mm-hmm. I was able to sort of keep myself afloat through tips. Um, I only recently learned an item that is not on your very long LinkedIn profile. Correct. And that is <laughs> Here it comes. you were a manager at Chi-Chi's. Yes. Chi-Chi's in the city center in downtown Minneapolis. I loved Chi-Chi's. Who doesn't love Chi-Chi's? Endless chips and salsa. Right? Yes. I I can't think of any... I I mean, if I want to die in a (laughs) Chi-Chi's. Endless chips and salsa. It's true. When I first moved to the cities, this is actually a good story, um, I moved here to finish my degree. I was in a relationship. and Where did you grow up? up I grew grew up in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Okay. And uh, I moved here... And I couldn't find a job. And I moved here with one of my buddies, one of my, my old roommate from college moved with me. And the two of us would drive around and apply for jobs at places. And we were, you know, I, I think we were 21 and uh, we couldn't find anything. And we were going to the, into the, what is now I think a Super America on LaSalle and 15th, but it used to be a 7-Eleven. Mm-hmm. And there was a gentleman sitting on the ground drinking from a pint of some sort, maybe a 40. He was drinking a 40, sitting on the ground next to the garbage. And he said, and we were, we must have been talking about applying for jobs. And he said, um, you guys looking for a job? You should go to Chi-Chi's. <laughs> Chi-Chi's will hire anybody. <laughs> and we looked at each other at, with our big gulps in hand. And Dave and I were like, let's go downtown to Chi-Chi's. So we drove down to Chi-Chi's and Dave had hair down to his butt, long red hair. And um, he pulled it back in a binder and... In a little hair tie. You went on the spot. Like we went on like that moment. We went. We were like, this guy looks like he knows what he's talking about. Mentorship. It happens everywhere. Right. Right. (laughs) If you're not looking for it, you miss it. And we went downtown, and we couldn't afford parking, so I drove around the blocks many, many times while Dave went inside and filled out an application, and then Dave took the car and he drove around the blocks while I went inside. Turns out I got hired. And he didn't because he had long hair and they didn't want that by the food. He ended up working at the Loring for years and years, so he was fine. The Loring didn't um, care about right? the, the hair. Right, the Loring was like, we will hire you for your hair. 
your hair works here. Let's let's go. Um, so yeah, I worked at Chi Chi's, but I think you need to tell me why All you know right. that. Okay, here's the funny thing. So we've known each other for a while. I think yeah. the first time we ever met was on a panel yeah. about technology. Sure. And I, you were doing like the geek girl yeah. thing, and yeah. we had some conversations about that. And so that was, you know, that was how I knew you. And then you've only just gotten bigger and more important. Huge. I'm lucky you even still talk Donuts. to me. And <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, it's the Facebook. Right. The Facebook, the Facebook is an amazing tool it to is. connect. And somewhere along the way, realized that you know my hair colorist. Yes, I do. I know everyone thinks this is all natural, but right. you know her. I'm like, that's kind of a funny one. I'm like, oh, do you use the same colorist? And you sort of laughed out loud. Yes, right? I did. And it turned out that you knew her because she was your employee at Chi-Chi's. Yeah. And she revealed this and you were not happy. Yeah. And we spent, we, you know, it takes a long time to get a hair color right. treatment. Lots so we had time a long about it. time. But yeah. I will say this, what she told me was when she had sort of a crisis and had like a boyfriend breakup, had to move out, had nowhere to go. You said, come on, you can live with me. Yeah, that's true. I love Kindis. Um, and uh, truth be told, um, I've known Kindis for 30 years. We were roommates yeah. because of that. And uh, she, so, so in fairness, I did not start as a manager. They didn't say, <laughs> oh, did you just come in out of that car? We're going to make you a manager. Mm -hmm. they, I had to start as a server. So I went through the, and then one day they were like, hey, you seem like you've got it going on. Work Why don't your you? way up. And it wasn't even a management job. It was more like a training job. And I would, I would, uh, so I would train servers on how to do it right. And then I would, um, I would plug in for management. So I would work management shifts as a trainer. Mm -hmm. um, but, you know, what I want to say about Chi Chi's and the reason that I'm okay with you bringing it up <laughs> is um, that was 28 years ago. What is it? How old am mm -hmm. I? Yeah, like 20. It was 1990. It was 89, 90. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, I, ha I made some of the best friends of my entire life there. We are still friends. We've all gone on to do other things. My friend Joe, who was a bartender there, he moved here from Philly, met him at Chi Chi's. He is uh, he works for the SEC as an attorney. So his his career is fascinating. My son thinks he's in the FBI. My friend Andy, who lives here, who has been all over the world um, working in technology as a technology executive. Um, my friend uh, Todd, who is an organic farmer in Cumberland, Wisconsin. And Todd and his husband, Stephen, are my kids' uncles. Like I'm so... And it all goes back to Chi Chi's. It all goes back to Chi Chi's. And Kindis, whom yeah. I adore, but I have this like extended family um, because of this experience at Chi Chi's because we were all sort of misplaced. We were all kind of figuring, we were all trying to figure out what we wanted to be when we grew up. Mm -hmm. And we were all experiencing this city life together. We were all trying to navigate, you know, the stories that we've been told. Like you, you're supposed to go to college and then jump immediately into your career and then get married and have 2.5 children. And none of us felt like that was truth for us. And we all felt like losers because of it. I'm not even kidding you. Like we lived in hovels and <laughs> we drank a lot of beer and, you know, we, some of us were sort of uh, discovering ourselves and so downtown Minneapolis was a very different place then mm -hmm. um and and so we kind of grew up together and we created we had events for we had we threw proms for ourselves and we we would have like little events and parties and we raised funds and we took care of each other and you know and and Kindis did have a really unpleasant situation with a guy that um like now um you know we speaking of me too um you know, we talk about that it was a real crisis and we just we just 
were there for each other. You were family. We were family. Yeah. And 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 that wasn't, you know, that wasn't a terminal stop for us. We weren't done. We weren't just in food service. But I will say that I wrote a, an essay years ago about um, how being a server informed my life as a CEO. Um, and I and I stand by it. I think how so. Well, I think being a waitress teaches you things that are basic in business, like how to upsell and how to know your customer and, um, you know, that relationships are everything. Like when you're a food server, you have 30 minutes, you know, and it's the first two that make your rela- make or break your relationship, mm-hmm. right? Like if I greet you, if I treat you with respect, I can't be too busy for you. I have to hear you. Um, I got to check in on you. I've got to... Bring me a and- refill. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And do not ask me if I if everything's okay when I... My mouth is full of food or do, depending on whether or not you like me. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah. And, and the other thing that I think was really great about working at Chi Chi's is we, everybody that worked there was from all works of life. So there was no class mm. there or, or all, all, you know, all places uh, in their, in their lives. It was all these different people. Some people who had grown up, you know, in the streets, it was, it was people of color. It was people from neighborhoods that we weren't familiar with. It was people who come from privileged families and were poor now. It was people who had never known any privilege at all. And so there was no class at Chi-Chi's. It was like this crazy melting pot. And, um, and we loved each other. That is so much deeper than I expected the Chi Chi story to go. That's why I was happy to tell you that story. Yeah. Yeah. So, did you have jobs in the digital space in technology before Clockwork? Sure. Yeah. What what did you do? How did you get on that path? So, you know, I was talking about that boss that I didn't love. Um, When I was working in that space, it was traditional media. So, I, I started to learn how to use things like editing machines. And, you know, and at that time, we were just starting to see the big avid you know, editing um, equipment that sh- that was essentially on a big computer, right? A giant Mac. So I was exposed to technology, but I wasn't very good at it. And I remember um, I went to a Sam's Club. Here, I'm going to keep mm-hmm. dropping these amazing brands, yes, right? right? And, <laughs> I, and I got my first laptop. And it was an old IBM that I actually still have. It's hilarious. But I started to teach myself how to code because I thought, so I, when I started to think about like, where is there opportunity for women to show up? and show up first um, because I'm not seeing it in media and media is like a good old boy you know it's like a it's like a boys club Hmm. and it's already been established and all the rules are already there in in the traditional sort of film and and video space Um, and the internet was just starting to be like a thing and um, so I went and I bought a book on how to code in Perl and I started playing with it and how to hand code HTML and I started playing on the internet and teaching myself um, you know, how to build a web page, for instance, before they were very mainstream. I think at the time, AOL was, you know, the primary way that people were sure. getting online. There were maybe 100,000 users of AOL. And I, like everybody else, was like, you know, popping in to hear you've got mail. Right. And um, but this there was this whole other side to the Internet that I was starting to explore on my own. And when I started to do that, I started to realize, oh, my gosh, there's a huge amount of opportunity here that nobody's really talking much about. It turns out that my future business partners were having a similar conversation, but their lives were far more glamorous than mine. While I was slaving away at Chi-Chi's, um, Mike and Chuck were uh, working for Prince at Paisley Park. Oh, And Mike had gone to the uh, Berkeley School of Music. He was a sound engineer and a mixer and a producer and a writer and a musician. And Chuck was a graphic designer 
who had sort of started at, graphic, at, at Paisley Park in one capacity, but had grown up to be you know, essentially a creative director for uh, Paisley Park and Warner Brothers. And they were the ones who introduced Prince to the Internet. Hmm. So Chuck has this great story about bringing in a giant Macintosh computer, setting it on a desk, plugging it into the wall, plugging in the modem, and explaining the internet to Prince. And he's he's the way he tells it, he says you could see the little thought bubbles open up around while his eyes just like went wide. And he said to Chuck, you mean I can talk to my fans like directly? Mm. And that was the moment when he started to realize he could cut out the middleman, hmm. which led to a lot of things. And some of it was pain for Chuck because then we saw the symbol. Right. Chuck had to figure out how to create that symbol digitally when it was hand drawn. He has stories about driving around with a floppy disk and that symbol and like trafficking it himself to publications. Yeah. Um, but they started exploring the Internet um, for Prince because Prince was starting to realize the potential there. So cool. And, How did you meet these guys? Right? So in that process, they created a bulletin board service. So before, you know, we think the social web happened when Mark Zuckerberg sat in his his dorm Harvard room. Harvard dorm room. Right? Mm-hmm. And, and, and decided to determine whether women were hot or not. Because that's how Facebook started, right? Mm-hmm. Like he created this catalog of lady faces and then let people vote on them. Um, it's a very different it, version of the story, isn't it? It, it really is. Yes. But I think it's one that, you know, should be told because yes. I think it speaks to the quality of people that are <laughs> that that live um, beneath the surface of Facebook. Anyway, um, while that was happening or before that happened, BBS's bulletin board services were the social Internet, how people connected. And they were mostly monochromatic, mostly text based. People would talk to each other in chat rooms or on thread in threaded discussions, a lot like what Reddit is today. Right. Okay. Like, Reddit got its, you know, was sort of shaped in the early world of BBSs. So they started to explore a BBS for Prince. They made one. They called it The Dawn. And uh, and Chuck made it different because while we were all texting in these type-based, um, you know, interfaces, he created this beautiful interface that was like Paisley-esque. It had, you know, all sorts of colors and different icons and it made noises. It had sounds. There was like a soundtrack for it so you could click into a, a, a chat room and it would say, you know, it would make a sound like it would make a sound of a door creaking or a door slamming. Um, so more innovative ex- than a lot was of what was happening. far more innovative. And did you just stumble upon this? Well, when they left Paisley um, due to issues with Prince, um, and those are interesting too, um, they went to Mike's house, they plugged the modem in in the basement, and they launched it and they renamed it Bitstream Underground. And Bitstream Underground was their new BBS. So they removed all reference to Prince and they started to attract artists and musicians. And there were several thousand artists and musicians who logged on from all over the country, many of them from the Twin Cities. Interestingly enough, many of them are still friends today. And there's a Facebook group devoted to Bitstream Underground. So I logged in, found out about it. They would have real life parties and their real life parties were at like Jitters downtown or, you know. Um, So I encountered these guys in real space, in meat space. Mm-hmm. In um, real life. <clears throat> yeah. And they were, and at the time I was thinking, oh, who will hire me in the technology space? Like, who's going to hire me? I have, you know, no professional programming experience. I only have a theoretical understanding of how these things work. And um, I met them. They had really interesting t-shirts on. They were very hairy. <laughs> hairy guys. Um, Your favorite? Yes, my favorite. Uh, and they just, 
they just made sense to me. They weren't really trying to be anything that they weren't. Um, so but did I, they have a job for you? No. So I wrote them a letter. Um, I was applying for a bunch of jobs, so I had resumes and stuff ready. But I wrote them a letter and I kind of said, you know, I think I could add value to what you're doing. Um, and by this time, they had started offering Internet services. And I kind of said, you know, here's my resume. Uh, I- I'd love to have a conversation with you. I think that my production experience would um, you know, be sort of interesting in the context of what you're doing on the internet. I never heard from them. So um, a little while later, I got an email address. I sent them an email and I said, um, hi, I sent you a, a resume not too long ago. I haven't heard from you. I really want to talk to you. If you don't respond to me, I'm afraid I'm going to have to stalk you. <laughs> right now, this was I do not recommend. Do not recommend anymore. This was very early on in the age of stalking. Right. It wasn't as, as, as threatening a. <laughs> it wasn't as refined a profession exactly. back then. This was like early nineties. Yes, it okay. was. It was. Uh, yeah, probably ninety five. Okay, ninety four, ninety five. Um, and I heard from them shortly thereafter, and it was a guy named Tom Garneau who is actually famous around town for being a sound engineer and producer of music and has worked with all like Mason Jennings and, you know, Tina Schleisky and all the all the Minnesota musicians whose names we know, Tom has worked with them. And he was also a part of Bitstream Underground. And he called me and we had this great conversation. And I often say that Tom hired me and then I never saw him again because he was just like, I don't want to do this anymore. We need somebody else to do it. Mm. Um so he introduced me to Mike Koppelman. Mike and I had lunch, and it was the most laid-back thing. But basically what I said to them was, I know you don't have a job. Here's what I need to leave, live on for three months. And if uh, at the end of three months I haven't proven my value, then you can kick me to the curb. But if at the end of three months I want a real salary, here's what it is, and I want to work here. Wow. And they were like, all right. And we started to work together. And at the end of three months, they offered me a real job. And we've been together ever since. So I've been with these guys since I was a baby. So at what point did you three say, let's start an agency called Clockwork? So we started. So so Bitstream started making websites in 1995 um, and it became an Internet service provider. So we were probably one of the premier Internet service providers, um, especially for residential. And then in 95, our first client was BASF. We started building websites for like um, H.J. Hines and M&M Mars and Fairview Health Systems. Hmm. And we had a great client roster. And then in 2001, uh, well, in, in 2000, we had a, an outside agency come in and make a strategic investment so that we could be their interactive arm. We started working with them. They bought us outright in 2001. And um, we worked with them for a while, you know, for a couple of years, all told, through the investment and whatever. Mm-hmm. But honestly, it was a it was a values misalignment for us, and we decided, you know what, let's just go. Um, they own Bitstream Underground. That's cool. Let's go build something else. And this time, let's apply all of the things we've learned in this process and through this acquisition, and let's build it better. And so we left, and no kidding, it was like we left in December, started clockwork in January of 2002. Um, we refused to call it a startup. We called it a start over. Hmm. And, uh, and we've been together ever since, 17 and a half years. They're still involved in yeah. clockwork. Mm-hmm. Okay. They're the board. They're my board. I have a board. They're okay. no longer like Mike owns a brewery in uh, Shakopee. Um, Chuck uh, owns a company that makes Switchel, and you'll see them at the Keg and Case. The Keg oh, and the Case. They've yeah. got a booth there. And Kurt owns a software company that makes um, 
hardware and software for breweries. Yeah. But um, you stayed. I stayed. Your day-to-day, would you have expected that you would be the one to, to stay and run this thing? Um, yes. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, when we first started, no. But as things progressed, sure. Yeah. What did you, I mean, the early days of Clockwork, was was it kind of just a continuation of Bitstream? You were sure. building websites. You were, mm-hmm. And were you, what was your role? Did, were you actually like in there coding things or were you I selling? Never, no, I, I sold and project managed. Hence the book, the project management book. Like when I started project managing, there was no process you know nobody was talking about waterfall versus agile when i started all this and and also we were talking about the internet and all these different moving parts and consumer expectations and working with clients that didn't really have an understanding of it and so there was all these there were all these gaps that needed to be filled um and oftentimes traditional waterfall development didn't apply but agile you know which is and i don't want to get into the you know specifics but waterfall is very much a process that requires a lot of planning and then a handoff and each piece of development is handed off to the next. Whereas Agile is a collaboration that that allows for uh, the, the, the development of software to happen and each role is sort of contributing simultaneously. And instead of this long planning process, we have shorter sprints of activity that lead to many, many milestones. Um, and clients love the idea of Agile, but they freak out when you can't give them an absolute around how much is this going to be and exactly what will I get at the end of it. Mm. So whereas Waterfall will say, well, this will be exactly this much and it will happen exactly in this amount of time and it will we will deliver exactly this. Um, so we wrote a book about it and that came about as a result of sort of making the business up as we went along and really starting to understand like the bus- the business of business and how that thinking applied to software development for the internet. What part of it excited you the most or or still does? Uh, I would say the part that has always excited me and still excites me is getting other people excited hmm. about about how to be innovative, about how to think about the future and what tech can make true. Um, and so is it tech? I mean, do you, do you love tech? No. Mm-mm. I love people and how tech supports and empowers people. Okay. It's interesting that you say that you sort of wanted to get out of more traditional media because it was so male-dominated and go over to tech. And I certainly don't think of tech as being any less male-dominated, really, even today. It's super male-dominated. But where I think it's different, and, you know, so much of what we're experiencing in business right now that is different is because of the Internet. The Internet has changed our culture. The democratization of information, access to leadership, you know, sort of the 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 way it subverts hierarchy inside of organizations, all of that has contributed to our culture. And I think there's something about technologists, um, while it's a male-dominated industry, they embrace those realities first. So I didn't find it as prohibitive for me to come in and assume some power, as I did in these entrenched businesses, you know, these established entrenched um, industries like media, mm-hmm. um, I found there to be way like if you and, and I always say, you know, one of the things I say to women a lot is competence 
gives you confidence. So if you know your stuff, which I managed to do in tech, there's room for all of us. You just got to show up. Right. And I do think that women, you know, as women, and, and I can say this because I am one, we tell ourselves stories about all the things we're not capable of doing. And we do it all the time. Mm-hmm. So so I think we're, we sabotage those opportunities for ourselves because, yeah, it is intimidating to go into a room and be the only woman. And it for sure was intimidating when I was in my 20s going into those rooms as the only woman um, and then building a company. I had, you know, I had a guy say to me once, well, you need some gray hair at the table and, you know, you need a you need a man with gray hair at the table for people to take you seriously. Or, you know, it, it's only been in the, you know, when I showed up here, you were like, do you need to... You know, powder your nose for the pictures or whatever. I didn't say powder your nose. I just said, do you want to use the restroom? (laughs) My point being, it's only been in the last 10 years that I've decided, you know what? This is what I am. Mm -hmm. This is who I am. I'm not going to change who I am. By the way, I asked the male guests if they would like to do that. I know you do. But there were were times when I would have shown up for this in a different way because I believe that was the expectation of me. The truth is, you just wanted me to show up. Did you ever wear dresses? Oh, God, no. (laughs) Let's not get crazy. No. No, for theater, if I got paid, yes. Yes. But I look like a tree stump in a dress. (laughs) I should never wear a dress. So did you I mean now obviously you have quite the impressive network of other women leaders and you're in women's presidents organization and all that. But in those early years, did you find other women who were kind of also on their way up in technology? Did you have female mentors at any point? Yeah, in those early years I did not not um and and i had you know it's why it's one of the reasons i give myself permission to be kind of loud about what we need to do for each other um you know i'm not some man hater um it was men who gave me this opportunity you know there were some great men in my life that i still adore who saw things in me that i didn't see in myself and made me you know who uh, who who invited me to be a partner in a business mm-hmm. um and that i'm really grateful for but no I, there weren't a lot of women and there and and you know I often talk about um, one of the reasons I love to speak or show up for events or be involved in stuff, especially women's stuff, is because I think we have this idea that success looks a certain way, especially for women. Um, And it's usually like when you think about like think about the most successful woman there is. Who who are you picturing? Sheryl Sandberg? Mm, No. Okay. Is it you? It's you, Nancy. I'm staring well, at you. Well, then my job is done. Um, no, I think we think often of like a Sheryl Sandberg, okay, right? Yeah. And they're white and they're privileged and they're moneyed and they're wispy. Have you ever been in a room with her? I haven't. Okay, I was. I'm not as cool as you. Right, right. Last year I was. Now, I, you know, I this is not meant to disparage Sheryl Sandberg. She is certainly a wildly accomplished, wildly intelligent human being um, and completely out of my league as far as success goes. But... Um, that is not the only model of success for women. And I think we need to, you know, we, we need opportunities to see ourselves. You know, big, chunky, loudmouths like me are, you know, give other big, chunky, loudmouths um, a reason to keep going. Mm-hmm. And I think that success comes in a wide variety. It's really diverse. And I think, you know, I, I think people have to see themselves in the world to believe that they belong there. Did you um, bring your whole self to work from day one? No. Were you? 
Okay. Mm-hmm. When did you start feeling comfortable just like this is who I am? I'm gay. I'm I have a wife. I have a child. I mean, when when did you start really being open? I know you've become much more political. Mm-hmm. And but how did that process evolve for you? Um I don't know if it was if there was like a moment in time. Well, I, yes and no. I don't know if there was a particular moment, but I do remember, you know, my son is going to be 13. Mm-hmm. We adopted him. Um, and when we were in the process of deciding, you know, having a family, we were in the process of building a family, we very intentionally talked to each other about how we would never apologize for our family. We would never hide our family, apologize for our family, um, because that would be the greatest disservice to this child, whomever he ended up being, he or she ended up being. Um, and then when my son came, um, it just became that much more true. It was like we owed it to him to be proud of our family. Mm-hmm. And um, and I think that that's the moment in time when it really started to crystallize. Um, I, I know that for the first, you know, 10 years of my career, I was completely... I would hide. I would, I would, um, and people don't realize we do this, I don't think, but I would, uh, I would transform my pronouns, you know, I like, like, like in reference to other people. Like if I was, you know, when talking about my person, I wouldn't say she, I would say nothing. I would work around, you know, I would, I would be pronoun avoidant. Uh Um, uh, and if it were like total strangers, like people in the past have asked me, and what does your husband do? And I have said, um, he's a therapist. Really? Sure. In the far off past, past because it's what yeah. am I going to do? Get into it with you? We're never going to meet each other again, mm-hmm. right? This is a this, but 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 you would never do that today. Hell no. Right. You Hell no, them. I wouldn't. But yeah. years and years ago, remember when I came out, it, it wasn't cool. Mm-hmm. You know, like my parents didn't talk to me for five years. Um, my mom said, "No, you aren't." And that was pretty much the end of that discussion. <laughs> I was like, well, uh, Wait, that didn't okay. <laughs> well, I'm glad we had this talk. Bye-bye. Um, but and what, what, did your business partners know? Did the people oh, who sure, worked they with you know? But, but you weren't talking to clients. Yes. Yeah, I didn't. That... I didn't. I wasn't out and proud. Let's say okay. that. You know, like people knew. You, I mean, come on. You, yeah. you could know me for 10 minutes and you'd know that I'm a big old lesbian. <laughs> um, I think that's true, right? You cannot make assumptions. Okay. Okay. Right? Sure. Um, but. But but I I wasn't, you know, I wasn't handing it out with my business cards. Mm -hmm. I wasn't making it that clear because I didn't – because I felt like, well, I have the staff and I have these people. I don't want anybody to make a decision based on whether or not they agree with who I am. Mm -hmm. And and ultimately I came to this this, um, realization that actually I didn't want people to make a decision – about who I am. Like, if they can't deal, then we probably shouldn't be colleagues. We probably shouldn't work together. Um, but that really was, as I said, crystallized when I had a kid. So it's one thing to become just more open about who you are. Mm-hmm. It's another thing to start taking on causes mm-hmm. when you are a CEO, a leader of a... I mean, how many people work for Clockwork? There's 60. And, I mean, you can you give some idea of the scale? I mean, you have big projects, big clients. Mm-hmm. It's like a legit agency. It's legit. It's a real deal. Yeah, yeah. So did, was there any part of you that's like... You know, politics, leadership, separate sure. things, mm-hmm. worrying about the business. Or Absolutely. Co- how did you navigate that? Um, you know, I 
uh, I mentioned earlier that I have a set of values. Clockwork has a set of core values that we publish. I sort of feel that it's, you know, I don't... Um, I don't consider what I do to be that political, but I do support candidates, causes, platforms that are about those values and inclusivity. So um, I think as long as there are candidates that are trying to tear people apart, I will not Those are people I can't get behind. And the candidates and the political causes that are trying to pull people together, I have a ton of time and space for. I also think, you know, one of – so I was the chair of the Family Equality Council and I'm now the – what you so eloquently called chair emeritus, which is like a paperweight. (laughs) It's like you're done and they call you for advice. You know, you're like the redwood tree. (laughs) Just look at the <laughs> look that's at the a elder. Pretty big honor it's and a lovely. pretty amazing platform. It's lovely and have. and um, and it's an amazing organization. And I was privileged enough to see it through a, quite a lot of change. Um, and it's just growing. And and I'm super proud of the work that we do. And just to just by way of example, you know, one of the things that I'm most proud of is the um, the amicus brief that we filed during the Doma case um, that Justice Kennedy cited when he cast a swing vote, which made marriage a reality across the country, when he said, we cannot ignore the voices of children. Voices of children was the name of the amicus brief. And what it said was, you can't make some children's families more valuable than others. Mm. Like, that can't happen in the world because it's like, like we are valuable because we were born, not because you decide I'm valuable. Mm -hmm. And he kind of said, these kids are walking through the world and they deserve to be respected and valued equally. And now I'm, you know, now now people are married as a result of it. And that was a super proud moment. Right now we're working on the Every Child Deserves a Family Bill, which uh, Congresswoman Ilhan Omar just signed on for Minnesota. Um, Senator Amy Klobuchar, we're hoping, will be one of the sponsors of that bill in the Senate. Um, and I think... Um, you know, that work is important to me because when we went to it took us nine years to adopt our son. Um, and when we went through the process, we were told by adoption agencies, we will not collude with you. Um, when we finally adopted, you know, I had to adopt as a single person. And then my roommate um, mm. then did a co-parent adoption in the state of Minnesota. But if we go to Oklahoma and I'm rendered unconscious in a car accident. My partner, that boy's other parent, may be prevented from making decisions on his behalf in that other state. And we think marriage has saved all of us, has solved all of these problems, and it hasn't. And now we're seeing, we're, we're existing in an administration that is rolling back protections, giving adoption agencies the right to discriminate. There are, there are literally hundreds of thousands of children in the foster care system. Mm-hmm. And there are Also, many, 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 many qualified, ready, capable parents who these adoption agencies can say no to simply because of who they love. And that's not political to me. There are hundreds of thousands of children who need families and there are families waiting for them. That is a legit issue that we have to fix. Right. You know. So has has it ever come up in in business? Do you think you've ever do you think there's ever been a client that didn't want to work with Clockwork because of your work with the Family Equality? Council? I don't know. I don't think so. Yeah. I don't I don't think so. That's good. How do you divide your time because you're still running this agency you were the leader of this 
company, sort of. Um, You know, (laughs) first of all, I have a great leadership team led by Megan McInerney, Mm -hmm. who's our COO, and I feel really fortunate to have a really solid aligned leadership team. I have an excellent staff. Those people are... I mean, there is no B team, and I'm really grateful for that. Um, and we have a team-based work culture, so everybody is constantly working in service of each other and the work for the clients. So that's great. I also think you know this. I think those of us who love our work are never away from it. So it's not about dividing my time. It's about prioritizing. But I'm always thinking about clockwork, and I'm always thinking about the future, and I'm always thinking about our clients and how we can better serve them. And I'm always thinking about... Um, you know, how best to grow and what are like you, my job at clockwork, they more air, air quotes, there's air quotes. Um, you know, they call it visionary. So my job is to push us into the future. I mean, we're an EOS company. Have you mm-hmm. talked to other people that are yeah, EOS? Yeah. Um, so that visionary thing, while I find it to be a interesting word, um, it is a responsibility that I take really seriously. And so, you know, I have a lot of fun pushing us, disrupting how we work every day and, and helping us to consider who we want to be versus who we are. Um, and I've never had a client say, yeah, we're not interested in that. Mm-hmm. Um, but I mean, we've only said no to a few clients, too. Like, there's not a lot of... And people are inherently good. You know, we all kind of want the same things. Even, you know, even when I meet people who perhaps are politically far away from me, I find reasons for us to be, you know, to operate in the, from the same place and to share stories and to share, you know, our lives with each other. Like, it, it's kind of interesting to me that we are so polarized right now when I very rarely meet people, even people on the other side of political issues from me, that I can't find some common ground with. Mm-hmm. And that's what makes me so sad about where we're at. Like, I don't think that people, that most people, um, really want harm for my family. Right. And I don't think most people want to prevent foster kids from finding families. I think it's really a very few humans that are making it difficult for a lot of people. Um, And I wish we could figure out how to get past that. Yeah. Wish more people could talk about it the way you are. You are quite loud on Twitter. You're very funny on Twitter. I do my best. um, Do you do it just because you enjoy it? Do you do it? Is it part of the business strategy it's what probably what, not <laughs> i bet they wish i'd stop have they ever told you to please stop no no. Well, no how did that evolve um i don't know i mean i think um Twitter has always just been this organic thing for me. I don't have a strategy. I'm not like, I must post seven times every day at these intervals. Um, it's sort of a, I'm in and I'm out. You know, it's like that old, you know, that old river yeah. um, metaphor. You step in and you step out and it just keeps going without you. Uh, you step in when you can. Um, and that's kind of what I do. And um, I I try not to get into, um, you know, Twitter wars with people. Uh and and I think that, you know, and, and listen, if somebody is just horrible and God knows there are horrible people on Twitter, but a lot of them are bots. And I think we have to remember that, like, there are horrible things being said on Twitter, some of them not by humans, mm-hmm. and they still hurt our feelings. What I've learned to do is block them. You know, if, if you're saying if, if you want to engage in real discourse, I will go there with you. But if all you want to do is call me fat and ugly, I'm blocking you because that is not productive. Um, I think that, you know, 
one of the things I've learned in my journey is we change people's hearts and minds through stories, through our own stories, by telling the stories of others. We change people's hearts and minds by showing up. Like, I'm not scary, and my family isn't scary, mm-hmm. right? Like, and 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 we're and and here's the other thing: we're boring, is what we are. We are boring. Like, how how have you and I spent time together through our glamorous existence as baseball moms? Right, right. Exactly. Like, sitting on a bench, sitting on a bench <laughs> watching long baseball games, little league games. How yes. deviant was I? Yeah. The lesbian baseball oh mom was it? So what did I do? I brought my own bat, maybe? You complained. That's what you did. I did. You complained <laughs> that it was long and it was hot. It was long and hot. <laughs> exactly. But, like, our lives are boring. We're all doing the same things. We're mm-hmm. taking care of our children. We're going to work. We're trying to pay our taxes. You know, we're trying to get along in the world. And nothing deviant is happening. And at the end of the day, and here's a little secret. I'm, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna, I'm gonna to share this. This is an exclusive. Okay. For you. We're ready. Allison Kaplan. We're capturing um, it. You know, at the end of the day, I think reducing people to who they might be in their bedrooms is really offensive because who are you and your husband to each other? We are our people. He's your person. Yeah. He's your buddy. Mm -hmm. He's your best friend. That's who I am with my person. Mm -hmm. That's it. I mean, and once you've been married a while, that's really all you are. I could use some (laughs) other words too, but yeah. Right? Right? Like, once you've been with somebody a while, Mm -hmm. it's the the salacious stuff that people want to apply. Mm -hmm. It's not happened for any of us. Right? (laughs) Like, let's be honest. This is a whole other show. Whole, whole other, other show. show. Right. But the truth is, this is my family. Yeah. And there's nothing wrong with family. Right. Right. Nothing Amen. deviant about family. Amen to that. Um, what about business? What do you want in the next chapter for yourself and for clockwork and for the work you're doing with diversity and technology mm. and so many other important causes? Yeah, I uh you know what clockwork is a really interesting little petri dish because we can lead by example and we could lead by being a tiny little um, you know agency with big ideas and big ideas for community change and social impact so one of the things that we're working really hard on is not just your typical sort of diversity and inclusion conversations but we want to demonstrate what we're calling race equity in action and we're doing that by doing the work so our leadership team has embarked on journeys of sort of personal exploration around race and racism um, many of us are doing our own work. And I'm not saying this in any sort of self-congratulatory way, because I do think that's a tendency that white people have. You know, hey, I'm doing work on racism. Tell me how great I am. (laughs) Um, That's not it at all. In fact, if anything, I'm only sharing this because I think it's important that we all recognize that there's work to be done. Um, And people are not numbers. So just saying, well, I'm going to hire more people of color is not doing the work. And what I've realized through this work is that inclusion is really about creating belonging, you know, creating a a space where people feel that sense of belonging. And it's super easy for me to create a space of belonging for people that are like me. It requires intentionality and care and moving outside of my comfort zone and actually learning more about people to create inclusive spaces for people that are not like me. Um, And I think because I'm white, you know, I have experienced a great deal of privilege in my life, even at Chi Chi's. 
And um, <laughs> it all comes back. It to does Chi-Chi's. comes right back to Chi-Chi's. And I so I think that what what Clockwork is doing that I'm really proud of is the work um, and having conversation, creating the space for uncomfortable conversations that ultimately lead to change. And that's what we've done with the Minnesota Tech Diversity Pledge. We have 250 companies that have signed up for that. And I'm really proud of that. And we're hosting these conversations that people leave saying, wow, I I was able to take this one thing back or I'm doing these two or three things and they've really made a difference. And that's all I want there. And as far as Clockwork's concerned, I mean, there was a time in my life when I would have said world domination. Um, But now I just think I want us to continue to be on the bleeding edge of technology. I want us to be better consultants, be better listeners, be better stewards of our clients' businesses. And, um, and keep growing in the direction that we are. Mm-hmm. Good goals. I feel like I need some nachos and margarita now. Let's do it. <laughs> what, are you, what, are you, what are you doing? <laughs> Nancy Lyons, thank you for inspiring us and sharing so many great, important ideas and your perspective with us. Hey, thanks for having me. It's really? always a pleasure to see you. I appreciate it. Stick around. We're going back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. That's next. All right, let's go get margaritas. All right. <laughs> All right. Well, as you just heard, Nancy made the decision to bring her whole self to work and really everything she does. There's so much talk these days about authenticity. How do you decide just how open and honest to be at the office? For some perspective, let's go back to the classroom with the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. Gino Giovanelli is a professor in the marketing department at Opus. And boy, Gino, there are lessons (laughs) to be taken from Nancy's experience, even all the way back to Chi-Chi's. Right, right. Well, what I love about Nancy is, is is she's so authentic. She's who she is, um, and she's she's putting it all out there. Uh, I think that helps her um, be successful. She mentioned the Chi-Chi's thing. It's like it's all about relationships. She shows up at the table. She's got 30 minutes with those people. The first two minutes are super important. She is what she is, and she kind of lays it out the way she lays it out. Um, I, I think in order to establish a relationship, you need to be authentic. I don't think you can be successful in those roles if you if you sort of water it down and play it safe, if you will. Um, so I, I think that's super important, and I think she does a really good job of that. I think she takes that even today into her current job. Right. Do you do you think that has social media been a factor in kind of how much of ourselves we show? It we're we're all out there these days. We are, and and. Because of that, I think we need to just make sure all those touch points say the same messages. Mm. You know what I mean? Like, like even with my students before they come into class, I go on LinkedIn, I go on Facebook, I, I check them out. I want to look them up. Absolutely, absolutely. Wow, did you hear that, students? Yeah, yeah because you know what I do the first day of class? I I I, I name them by name. That's amazing. They are they surprised? In, I say hi, Ali. Hi, whatever. They yeah. are surprised. They're like, how do you know who I am and what do I? I said, this is a class on digital marketing. Uh huh. Of course I know. I know. I don't know who you are, but I know your name. I know what you're putting and, out there. And I know what you're putting out there. And, wow. and that's fine. I said, if you have any concern, mm-hmm. then guess who else can look? Everybody. But then you find a way in that classroom. I love this when you were telling me that you don't just talk about the relationships. Right. You also talk about value in another way. You got a calculator. I did. I uh, didn't expect a calculator well, the, okay. in this discussion. So the, so the thing, back to, back to Nancy, it, uh, she talks about the relationships are so important. They are. We also, in any kind of situation where we're providing a product, 
We need to show the value of the product. And what I do with my students is I, I, I first day of class, I write two numbers on the board, on the whiteboard. The first number is 160. The second number is 4160. And I ask the students, what do those numbers mean? And usually there's like an awkward 30 seconds of, of silence. Mm-hmm. Then I just simply go up to the numbers and put a dollar sign in front of each one. And then there's still awkward silence. And I finally explain, 160 is the, is the cost of this class that you're sitting in today. For the hour and 40 minutes that we're together, somebody is paying $160 for you to sit in this chair. 4160 is the cost of the entire course for the 16 weeks. Okay, so as I say, from this point forward, I'm not going to talk in class. I'm not going to start class until some student gets up and writes those numbers on the whiteboard. And I want them on the whiteboard so that when we're, t- when we're learning, I want you to look at those numbers and say, am I getting my value? Because that's hmm. the other half. It's relationships, but you also have to have a valuable product. My students wouldn't love my class just because I have a relationship with them. I need to teach them something valuable. But is all the value, does it all relate to dollars or isn't some of it about how you feel or, and what you absorb and it's the, fl- the relationship? It's, it's, it, well, sure. It's the combination. So I said, I don't want you to walk out of class going like, wow, that was really great. I, I have a great relationship with my professor, my, my, with my fellow students and stuff. I, it's a business class. Mm-hmm. So I said, when you leave this class today, I want you to look at that number because I put it right by the door. And I said, if you don't get your $160 worth of value today, I need you to let me know what I need to do differently as a professor. But before you do that, I need you to think to yourself what you can do in order to better realize that value. Hmm. Whether it's coming to class, prepare, whatever it is. The point being, we need to think about things in terms of relationship and the value of, of the offering that we're selling. Right. Together, wow. those, that's, that to me is the... The, the magic. That's the magic. That's the magic. You know, whether it's ch- it's it, at uh, Chi-Chi's, if it's chips and salsa and margaritas, yep. that's value, right? Mm-hmm. It brings fun. I mean, mm-hmm. yeah, you're right. It isn't always measured in dollars. Mm-hmm. But the fun factor, whatever it is, it's not just the relationship. It's it's the product, too. Or your clockwork and you're creating a website. Totally. Right. Yeah. Right. So Nancy has a great relationship with her clients, but she needs to build mm-hmm. world-class websites. Mm-hmm. With, 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 she said, bleeding-edge technology, whatever it is, the product needs to be there, too. Okay. Yeah. Great advice. In, in a complimentary fashion. Yeah. Yes, yeah. absolutely. A lot to think about. Well, yeah. thank you, Gino. And thanks to our sponsor, the University of St. Thomas Opus College of Business. If you haven't already, please subscribe to By All Means wherever you listen to podcasts. If you want to know more about the show, go to tcbmag.com slash byallmeans. I'm Allison Kaplan, and on behalf of Twin Cities Business, thanks for listening to By All Means. Teamwork to make by all means, and we've got some all stars. Thanks to our audio engineer, Tom Ferlitti. Digital support is Ricky Hannigan and Dan Nepo. Thanks to the University of St. Thomas Senior Media Relations Manager, Vanita Sakar, and Associate Dean of the Schultz School of Entrepreneurship, Laura Dunham, for all their help. Our theme music is by Songfinch. Hope you enjoyed by all means. <laughs> <laughs>